0: All right. Good evening. We are dealing with uh, Parshat uh, Vaitchanan, which is also called Parshat Nachamu, and Nachamu comes immediately after Tishbeav. And amongst the things that it talks about is uh, there's, it brings the Ten Commandments. But the opening um, verses of Vaitchanan talk about Moshe longing to go into the land of Israel and being denied access. But then there's a few verses that come in which talk about the uniqueness of the Jewish experience on on two on two different planes. One about from our own point of view, and we'll get to this shortly, but on our own point of view of how our historical experience of leaving Egypt and witnessing Mount Sinai is something that should really you know, stay dear in our hearts and be something really at the forefront of our minds throughout our existence. And the other part is the fact that the world should notice such a thing, that there's this whole um, idea that the world will see us and they'll be able to... uh, you know, by looking at the Jews, they will come to the conclusion of, wow, this is a a people that are close to Hashem, and Hashem is in their midst. Okay, so that's uh, the sort of parts. Also, there's the Ten Commandments, the review of the Ten Commandments comes in this week's parasha, and a number of other different themes, a bit sporadic, as uh, most of uh, Sefer Devarim is. But what I wanted to focus on this evening is, uh, truth be told, it's a topic that could be dealt with in virtually every parasha in the Torah in some form or another, and that's the idea of cognitive dissonance. So, tonight is probably going to be more of a a talk on psychology than a talk on the parasha, but hopefully we'll, you know, bring enough of the parasha in to show how this manifests itself in uh, different ways. Okay, so, I thought we'd start with a nice little cute cartoon, which says, sorry, my desire to be well informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain the same. So that is cognitive dissonance in a nutshell that the idea that the way uh, we want to be or what we want to believe and who we actually are often uh, completely out of sync with one another. And that is where the dissonance is. The concept of cognitive means it's something that's happening in our head and dissonance means it's out of whack. It's a sort of hypocrisy in many ways. So what we're going to see is that throughout our lives, we are confronted with different uh, areas of information that seem to contradict our lifestyle, and the things we would like to think about ourselves. So a good example would be a smoker. So a smoker knows that smoking is bad, yet they really want to smoke. So they've got this cognitive dissonance that what they want, you know, to do is at odds with what they know they should be doing. Now, in many ways, this is the whole battle that we have with our Yates Sahara, that the, our, our challenges with the uh, evil incarnation is very much this idea that we know we should be doing something, but we really want to do something else. But where we're gonna focus on it this evening is trying to break down, firstly, the psychological principle in two different ways, and then <coughs> to show how this manifests in the world of Jewish philosophy in general and in our Parsha in particular. Okay, so cognitive dissonance is a theory in social psychology. A lot of this is come from different uh, websites and textbooks and the like, but uh, hopefully it'll all makes sense. Cognitive dissonance is a theory of social behavior. It refers to the mental conflict that occurs when a person's behavior and beliefs do not align. The factors that affect this degree of cognitive dissonance that person experiences include, okay, the nature of the belief. So each of these factors are now going to determine how harsh and how difficult that dissonance is going to affect you. So in certain areas, it doesn't really bother us that much. But in certain areas, it's going to keep us up at night. So for example, the type of belief. Beliefs that are more personal lead to more significant dissonance. So the beliefs that are more at your core, as opposed to something which uh, listen like if, for example, if i 'm uh, watching a sports game and I could care less which team wins, and I say okay i 'm going to go for the red team, and then I see a file a foul, so i 'm less likely to say that the ref is biased or the ref is uh, working against my team if I could really if I really could care less about the results, my belief of wanting the red team to win is not enough of a push to make me skew my objectivity in watching the game now if it 's my team uh, it's my national team i'm watching the wallabies play then i'm going to see it with a far more jaundiced view and not going to be able to see it correctly and so that's where so the more core that belief is to who i am the more difficult this dissonance is going to be number the value of the belief Beliefs that people hold in high regard tend to cause greater dissonance so my preference um on uh, what kind of food i eat is nowhere near as my belief on for example the politics of the state of israel so if we're going to ben and jerry's right so ben and jerry's is a good topical thing so what is worth ben and jerry's right wrong or the bunch of self-hating jews uh, or anti semites however you want to say it or not so because it's attacking israel albeit that it's specifically in the west bank and the, in the, the occupied territories we'll just leave it at that is that it's it, it something that's m- much more core to my belief. So I, I, the ability of me to be uh, challenged by this and uh, is going to be far more confronting because of the core of that belief. That's not necessarily a dissonance, but just the idea that the more it comes down to it. So, so the, the, the more core in my belief that the matter is, the more I'm going to find it confronting and it's going to be harder and the dissonance is going to be greater. And finally, the size of disparity, the substantial disparity between conflicting and harmonious beliefs will result in more dissonance. So how far what you believe is from what the reality is. So so a good example where we see a lot of cognitive dissonance is where you see in the world of politics that and, and there's something called confirmation bias comes is that your politician that you support, you can see no bad that they do. So, for example, in, uh, for Trump supporters... Trump could do no wrong. There was just, it, but he said some things that were absolutely grotesque. So he said, "So I, I wouldn't want uh, my daughters uh, m- dating or married to a man like." Donald Trump, but yet I want him to be my president. So how do I get around the fact that he's made these terrible misogynistic comments? So that's co- that's your cognitive dissonance. So what do I say? Says, ah, it's just rhetoric. It's not really, it's not really what they mean. It's a uh, it's not really what he means. He's just he's just speaks off the cuff or whatever way you need to do it to justify it. So one way or another is when you have this dissonance about what you want to believe to be true and what you actually are doing in your life. So that dissonance, that, that conflict, it's going to leave you feeling anxious, guilty, ashamed. So anxious, not knowing what the future brings. So we'll go into areas of religion. Guilty and ashamed is if you're doing something which you know you shouldn't be doing. You feel a certain level of guilt. I remember as a child um, in South Africa when I used to, So, uh, and I imagine many of you would appreciate where I come from, but... So I grew up in a world where intellectually we we're told that all men are equal, black and white. We are all exactly we're all children of Hashem, but practically we do not speak to black people as equals. We spoke we spoke down to them, um, whether it be calling them boy and girl, or whether that just the nature of the language. The same way as many people when they speak to the elderly, speak to them like they that they that they are mentally impaired. So you say hello. How are you? Did you have a good day and And they play bingo and throw balls in the you know in the old age homes so that idea that is talking down to some so I remember as a kid um I used to play golf and uh, we we used to take in our golf bags old clothes because people hit balls into the water, and the caddies who are all black in South Africa would go into the water to fish them out. And they would want to sell them. Now they could sell them to the golf shop, which they prop were supposed to do, and they'd get very little. Let's say fifty cents a ball. But I would go and I'd say, "Listen, I've got this brand new tracksuit, which for them was worth a lot more, and they could give me a whole bunch of balls for a tracksuit." But the negotiation that I'd do with them, it would be I'd be treated, I'd be trying to take advantage of them, and 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 the idea that I knew that. There was something shameful about this because I was trying to take advantage of a poor person who was trying to get some clothes. Again, these weren't fashionable clothes. This was just to keep them warm at night. And I was I was wheeling and dealing with it. So there was a shame associated with it. So how do you deal with it? I said, Well, he'll get more money from me than he'll get from the than you'll get from the pro shop. So if you think of I'll tell you how we heard it in South Africa, when people apartheid and says blacks apartheid. So you'd hear this idea that blacks have it better in South Africa than they'd have it in any other country in Africa. Or you'll hear it in Israel, that pa- Palestinians live better under Israel than Arabs live in any country in the world. That's cognitive dissonance. That is this idea that I'm feeling uncomfortable that these people are living a certain way, but I can justify to myself that wherever they would be, they would be much living in a much worse situation than they currently are. So that's guilt, shame, and the like. So, how do you, so when you've got this conflict, so what do you do about it? So, it says, well, how do you, if, you, if there's information out there that's going to make you feel uncomfortable? So, number one, you avoid the information. So, Facebook and social media in general uh, have done a great job in doing that. Because if you're a pro Israel supporter, and, and, or you're, you're a liberal supporter, so if you're a liberal voter, so you only read the Australian, and your Facebook, Twitter feeds will all come and give you conservative opinions. You only listen to 2GB. You don't listen to uh, ABC. And, and you can conform because you don't have to listen to the things that make you feel uncomfortable. So, and, and the same with a person who's a liberal, you know, a person who's, who's a Labour supporter. So they listen to 702. They, they watch Q&A and they think, oh, this is a fantastic, well-balanced program. And uh, their Twitter feeds give them all the information that they want. So that's one way. So cognitive dissonance. first we avoid it. Number two is we persuade and justify. We need to find ways to discredit opinions, find confronting. So any person that, that writes something that I find offensive or confronting, I don't deal with the topic. I discredit the writer. And my guess is everyone on the call here acknowledges that regarding what the other people do. So if you were to if you're conservative and you're speaking to liberal people and you give them a good argument So that you will say oh, they always try to undermine it by you know We don't reasons. they don't have to listen to this person or they just they're so close-minded But The reality is we're all closed-minded and that's part of our cognitive dissonance We don't only hear things that upset our apple cart. We love living. So the final way to resolve um, Cognitive dissonance and this is the proper way is to is to reconcile the differences. So what if two things have to change You've got to change your belief. You've got to change your actions. So either you've got to, to come to a conclusion that smoking is actually not bad for you. Not to convince yourself, but you actually have to prove that smoking is not bad for you. And then you can keep smoking. Or you've got to stop smoking. And that's where all these ideas of cognitive dissonance come in. Is that when you get to a point where this what I believe and how I act are completely out of sync. So the only way to reconcile them, to actually move forward in it, is to change the way I believe. Sorry, change the way I act or change the way I believe. So let's get a little bit controversial now. So I believe, I believe Hashem gave us the Torah. I believe in Judaism. I don't keep certain mitzvot. So how do you live with that? The Torah says you have to, let's not even get into the, um, let's not get into the, the big ones. Let's talk about simple ones like, um, let's speak, speak Loshon Hora. Not allowed to speak Lush and Hora Torah says Not to speak Lush Hora I speak Losh and Hora So how do I How do I get around that So I've either got to say It's not such a bad In Avera Everybody speaks Losh and Hora I live with this terrible guilt That I lose Lush and Hora Or How do I resolve it I stop speaking Lush Hora Or I said say that Hashem didn't give the Torah now, like, Those are the ways you get around it But we're living with that cognitive dissonance, that the way we're behaving and what we believe are out of sync. Now, in many of these cases, we try as best as we can because for many of us, and and I hate to say this, if you recall the the sheet, let me just take us back to that sheet. This is all based on going to be what type of belief, the value of the belief and the size of the disparity. So the type of the belief, so let's say Loshan Hora type of belief is is, a, is an important thing but the value so how much is this dissonance so if if Losh and horror and keeping the torah is is a value that you really value and you're struggling to do it so it's going to keep you up at night if it doesn't keep you up at night so it's a sign that you know something about your emunah something about your faith okay so that's intro number one now the second part and this was the the big study in cognitive dissonance in fact, the original study was based on a book. Well, it's not based on a book. It was a book that was developed after a study by a gay name, a guy named, just have to think what his name was. i have it here. Oh, I forgot it. it was in the book here. Uh, Leon Fertziger. That was it, Leon Fertziger. So I wrote a book called When Prophecy Fails. Now, this is a fascinating book. Um, if anyone is interested in these source sheets, which I've written, written a lot more than I'm going to share with you now, But in essence, the the theory was as follows. So first, again, a group of scientists, a group of psychologists got together and they said, okay, we are going to study cult members. And uh, what we want to do with this is we want to try to figure out not only what um, what happens in the cult, but what happens when um, prophecies that are prophesized by the cult don't come true. So this they did through a, a small uh, religion. It was a quasi-religion that eventually some of the the, uh, let's say the descendants, I don't know, some of the followers landed up becoming part of the starting of the Scientology. But this was a, a group called the Seekers based in Chicago. And they had a leader named Dorothy Martin who used the pseudonym Miriam Keach. Um, well, that was the pseudonym they used in the book. And she was a housewife, but she claimed to have received messages from the Guardians, which were a group of superior beings, some aliens from another planet. And they said that there was going to be a terrible flood that was going to engulf the entire of North America and would destroy the world on December 21st, 1954. Now what's going to happen is that this group, you know, what they need to do is they need to get together and go to a particular place. And on doomsday, what will happen is this, uh, these, these, um, uh, so what did I call them? These seekers. These, uh, these, these alien beings would come and collect them and save them from the impending doom. So now the psychologists came and they said, All right, we want to see what's going to happen on the 22nd of December. So 21st of December is when the, this is all going to happen. What's going to happen on the 22nd? So many in the group, you should know, quit their jobs and sold all their possessions and they really, you know, prepared for the apocalypse. And what happened is doomsday came and doomsday went and uh, nothing happened. Nothing happened. So the prophetess, you know, said, oh, really? She'd had another vision or another exposure and said that because of the goodness of the group, the force of good and light of the group, that the world had been spared. And now they were all going uh, going to be saved. Okay, now. You look at something like that and you like, all right, you know, that's a, it's a bit of a crazy and, and cult people, people involved with cults, surely are uh, crazy to some degree. But the reality is there were a lot of people involved with this particular cult and they sold and gave up so much. And what DeFertiger and his uh, colleagues um, basically came to is, is, well, what happens to the followers when they're you know, their prophecy has come false. It doesn't come true. Meaning that this is the cognitive dissonance. They had this vision. This was going to happen. They bought into it. On a certain day, this is going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. So what do we do? Now, the prophetess says, actually, no, that's not happened. This is going to happen. You know, we've all been saved because of it. So what they found is the more that people had invested of their life, into the cult, the stronger their belief came despite the false, false prophecy. Now, as, as crazy as this whole concept sounds, it means that if you have given up everything for a belief, if that belief is disproven, not only will you not give up your belief, you'll become, you'll invest more in that belief. Now, that is an idea which sounds completely crazy, but I can tell you some uh, basic examples where we see this happen all the time. And, and this is, I don't know if this is a cognizant of this, but you see this idea happen all the time. So one is in business. So there's a concept called sunk costs. So you invest money into a particular business, and after a while, you realize that, okay, the business is losing money. So what do you do? Invest more money into the business. At some point, you get to the point where you say, I'm just throwing good money after bad. This business—it doesn't matter how much money I throw at this business. This business isn't just not going to—is not going to succeed. I've got to pull out. But what stops you pulling out is the fact that you've invested so much money in this business. I've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in this business. To call quits now means I'm going to lose all that money. Maybe if I put another few thousand dollars in, I'll be able to resurrect it. But you say, but it's not going to happen. The business is going to die. So, so at some point, you have to just cut your losses and say, I, I tried it. It didn't work. I got to leave. And that's what happens in business. And people don't do that lose even more business. Um, another example of that is failed marriages. So you see people in a bad marriage. And at some point, a bad marriage, you, you, you have to work on it. You have to try and make it better. But at a certain point in time, and usually both parties acknowledge this, is that this marriage is just not going to get better. It is broken. So what do you say? So we've been married for 10 years. We've been married for 20 years. He says, what well, we're just going to get divorced now. It's 20 years down the road. Let's just, let's just plow along for another year, another two years, another five years, another 10 years. And then you get people that are married for so much longer than they should have been, but they couldn't pull the switch because the idea is that I've invested too much to give up now. That's exactly what they found in this, in this, uh, in this cognitive dissonance test, is that once you invest, the more you invest the harder it is to pull away. So even if it's completely disproven and and the whole idea of what you, um, what you believe in has been completely shattered in front of your eyes, if you've invested in it and it's a core to who you are, it's going to be incredibly difficult to dissociate with it. Now, let me give you a, a few examples in Jewish history where this, uh, this concept comes in because this is unfortunately not... Um, not something, uh, not something that is just theoretical. So Shabtai Tzvi. So, so for those who are not familiar with Tzvi, I'll bring all through. You don't need to look at the screen. You look at me. So Shapteitzvi was a false prophet um, in the in the late seventeen hundreds, and he came and he was he had a, a champion who sort of his agent named Nathan of Gaza, and Nathan and, and Shabtai Tzvi sort of got to a point where. Nathan convinced Shabtai and eventually convinced a lot of other people that he was the Mashiach. Now, this was, just to appreciate the timing, this is after the Chimuniki massacres. There's been a terrible um, destruction of European Jewry. It's just before the Hasidic movement. This is one of the reasons the Hasidic movement got such backlashes, because it came immediately after Shabtai Tzvi. And, And Shabtai Tzvi went around telling people he's the Mashiach, and he's going to go to Eretz Israel and they're going to rebuild the temple and everything's going to be fantastic. And people were like, you know, imagine, it's like you've just, well, the temple, you know, the, the whole of Europe's been decimated. Jewish Europe's been decimated. And people are looking for a champion. And everyone's expecting that after destruction, there's going to become some messianic figure. And Shabtazvi falls in it. And Shaptatsvi gets an enormous following. Now, when I say enormous following, I'm not talking about like a few hundreds or a few thousands. Like The majority of, of European Jewry bought into this story. And many of them, when he says, I'm going down to Israel and come with me, people sold up their houses, gave up their possessions, and did everything they can to follow Shabbat Tzvi to Israel. Now, en route, they stopped in Turkey. And in Turkey, I think it was the Sultan or the Caliph of Turkey, you know, got wind of this whole thing and brought Shabbat Tzvi in front of him and gave Shabtai Tzvi the following uh, ultimatum. He says, you can convert to Islam or I'm going to murder you. I'm going to kill you. So Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam. So what happened to Shabtai Tzvi? So Shabtai Tzvi, what happened to his followers? This was a huge, this was a, a huge um, movement that was based on the fact that this guy is the Messiah. And now he's converted to Islam. So take our little um, cognitive dissonance theory, you, you, you play it out. The people who sold everything to follow Shabtai Tzvi, what did they do? They still followed Shabtai Tzvi. They said that Shabtai Tzvi, this was all part of the messianic idea that, you, that he's going to convert to Islam and this is part of the re- revelation. This, is, this was all part of it. So much so that generations after the death of Shabtai Tzvi, people still believed he was the Mashiach. One of the greatest controversies in the late 1700s, early 1800s, was between Rav Yonatan and Rav uh, Yaakov Emden. Who, Rav Yaakov Emden was the Rav in... in um, his father was the Rav in Netherlands. I think he was in Germany, Rav Yaakov Emden. And the other greatest rabbi of that particular time was Rav Yonatan And Rav Yaakov Emden claimed that he had found an amulet. An amulet was, they would write... In a sort of omens, in he had found an amulet written, allegedly written by Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz, that was written because Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz was a Shabbatei, was a Shabbatei Tzvi supporter, and Rav Yaakov Emden. Again, we are talking about the two greatest rabbis in Europe. Rav Yaakov Emden chased all over Europe to try dethrone. And discredit Rav Yonatan Ibishitz because he was, a, he was a Shabtai Tzvi supporter. To the best of my knowledge, Rav Yonatan Ibishitz never denied it. He said that the, the accusations were not true, but he never came out explicitly. Said I don't think anyone thinks he was a Shabtai Tzvi supporter. But that being said, is that Shabtai Tzvi lasted for generations, even though it was obvious to anyone who was not invested. But once you are invested, it's very hard to give up these sort of things. Second example. And this is something which is, uh, so each of these examples, you, you can hear um, s- uh, snippets of it that still exist in the world today. The second one is the Jews of Germany in the 1930s. So there was a certain point in, in, in Germany around, you know, post-Kristallnacht where uh, every, Jews realized we've got to get out of here. But from the time of the Nuremberg Laws until Kristallnacht, which was about, about, about six years there, there was, to a certain degree, there were a lot of Jews that got out of Germany. But a lot of Jews said, no. And there were many Jews who wrote letters because Jews in America were calling for boycotts of uh, of German products. And Jews, so Rav Eliza Munk, I think his name, Rav Munk, wrote the, the World of Prayer, was a very prominent German rabbi. And he wrote letters to the Jewish community in uh, in New York saying, please do not boycott Germany. You know, this is just... This is just rhetoric. This is not, never going to go anywhere. Um, we're fine here. Germany's fantastic. We don't need to get out of here. Everyone who's not invested in Germany looks from the outside looking in and says, are you crazy? Get out of there. The writing's on the wall. But other people look at it and say, no, what are you talking about? It's not so bad. The newspapers make it out to be much worse than it is. We're very comfortable here. We, not ex-. And we see, okay, history is 20, you know, Hans 2020. But at the end of the day, we see this idea. That when you are in, invested in something, it's very hard to give up. Now to get to the one that let's say is, is the most uh, difficult. And that is one of the, um, and when I say it's the most difficult, is that um, we have these challenges that there's no easy answer. So the, the example I'm thinking of particularly is how do we resolve the concept of a loving God and suffering in the world? Because that's real cognitive dissonance. We believe that Hashem loves us, and Hashem is good, and Hashem wants good things to happen, and yet we see lots of bad things happening. Now that's a cognitive dissonance. So how do we deal with it? So the way that religious people have done, it, and every religion is exactly the same, is we have to try, think from a rational, logical point of view, of why it's a, somehow a loving God can allow such suffering in the world. And, and everyone has to do it. Because the, the two just don't add up. Now, the, for me, the, the easiest solution is, I don't know. Why do I have to understand everything? Why does everything have to be rational and logical? Some things are not rational and logical. But most of us want to be as rational as possible. So when we see those sort of things, like how could Hashem allow suffering? He says, ah, uh, you know, it's really not bad. It's really, if once you see the big picture, it'll be good. Or I'm giving a class next week on um, where was God in the Holocaust, so, which is just a, an extreme modern version of why do bad things happen to good people. But, in essence, you've got t- two groups of people. One group of people says, don't know. And one group of people says, we do know. And whichever way you look at it, you know, for those who say don't know, it says, listen, it's, it's, it's a mystery to us, a mystery. And so, there's a mystery that can I say, terrible suffering in the world for no reason whatsoever, there's no God. Or there's terrible suffering in the world, and there's a reason, but I don't know, and that there is a God. And then the second group of people says, I'll tell you exactly why the Holocaust happened. The Holocaust happened because of dot, dot, dot. And that's the, the desire to be able to, you know, reasonably deal with this cognitive dissonance. Okay. So now back to it. So that's, you know, from a psychological point of view, and I hope that's made a lot of sense. And it affects every single one of us. Every single one of us. And you will see what happens in time. Is that if you believe one thing and then it gets disproven. If you are finding ways to say, why is this not a kasha? Why is this not difficult? How do I get around this? How does this make sense? So, for example, um, so the the, 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 um, the aliens are going to come pick us up on a particular day. The aliens didn't come. Ah, that sounds like a, this is all a load of rubbish. Ah, no, it must be that the aliens are going to come tomorrow or that, that we saved. Um, Shabbat Tzvi is the Messiah. Listen, he's doing the Messiah. He's taking us to Israel. He's converted to Islam. That doesn't really work with it. Ah, it's part of the process that he has to convert before we do. Now, it, it may be. I'm not saying that it's not. Maybe Shabtah Tzvi did have to convert to uh, there. And maybe Shabtah Svi will be the Mashiach. I, I, don't, I can't say definitively, no, it doesn't make sense. And it's contradictory to so much within our, our our literature. But I can't say that it's not. But what happens is that as soon as we have to come, every time something doesn't happen, it's going to happen this way, or this is what we think, and then something disproves it. Now we have to justify it, consistently justify it. So that's when we... Um, That is cognitive distance at its worst. And where we need to do, ideally, is to either change our beliefs, be mature enough to say, listen, I'm struggling with these beliefs. Maybe I need to change my belief. Maybe the way I'm looking at the world is not right. So that's what, um, you know... This week has been a week of, um, everyone was telling me they were so excited about this Ben and Jerry's boycott because at least it meant that this unorthodox stuff would stop coming on their feet because they're so sick of the unorthodox. Now, one way about unorthodox, it's something I I admire about people who leave Judaism in the same way as I admire people who embrace Judaism, and that is the fact that they can't live with the cognitive dissonance. They can't live with the fact that they see the world one way and they live in the world a different way and they want to be consistent. Now, you can disagree with their, their answers and why they do things, but I think at the end of the day, one of the things um, we have to acknowledge and respect is the fact that these are people who want to live consistent lives. And I think there's a value in that. They, it's, uh, even if it's we disagree with them, I think it's consistent. So let's see listen, how it plays out in the Pasha, this idea. So for, from our parasha, is. This is the beginning of the Pasha. Behold, see that I've taught you. This is Moshe speaking. I've taught you the rules of Hashem as Hashem has commanded me. To fulfill them and keep them in the land when you get there. And you should guard them and you should keep them. Because that is your wisdom and your discernment. in the the eyes of the nations. That they will hear all your laws and your practices and they will say, What a wise and discerning nation, great nation they are. How great is this nation that God is close to them? Like our God that we, when we call out to him. And who is a great nation as mighty as that, that has such righteous laws? The laws that I give you. So the way that says that the world will acknowledge, they'll look at the Jewish people. And they will acknowledge the fact that unbelievable how these Jewish people are able to do and be who they are. Now, this for me is the source of Jewish um, exceptionalism in the world. Why is it? Where in the Torah do you see that Jews will always be so exceptional in what they do? Whether it be professionally, um, in, in the world of um, sciences, in medicine, in arts. Why, why do we do it? It's because the Jews are going to be people that the world will look at. That's what this pastor said. Now, ideally it should be in the world of morality, in the world of godliness, in the world of Kedusha. But one way or another is telling us that the world will look at us and behave that way. Now the world's going to struggle with that. So where's their cognitive dissonance? That the Jewish people live such a remarkable existence and have been here for so long despite everything and are succeeding despite all the odds. So how do you deal with that? That's anti-Semitism. So cognitive dissonance and anti-Semitism are so often intertwined because we can't be, how can it be that a people that are 0.01% in the world's population can take up, what's it, 20% of Nobel Prizes are all over, you know, Hollywood, sciences, arts, politics. We're everywhere. How is that so possible? It must be they, they not this. They won't say, oh, because that's, they've got divinity in them. Because that's too difficult to judge, so they have to find another way, and that's where the anti-Semitism—that's the root of anti-Semitism. But lest we think, oh, this is uh, now this is going to be two forms of uh, anti—not anti-Semitism. These are going to be two parts where we um, where we uh, are guilty of these particular crimes. So just. Consistently, as a Jewish people, look to yourself and ask, in the ever of history, has there ever been anything like the Jewish people? That a, a nation that heard God speak from the fire on Mount Sinai and survived, or that God came and took them from one nation from midst another nation, that we, the birth of the Jewish people was out of Mitzrayim. This has never happened before. Look, your existence is miraculous. Acknowledge that. That you heard God speak on Mount Sinai. And you were born through the suffering of Egypt. So you've got to realize that. And if we don't realize that, so the question is, is: like, how do you miss it? How do you miss the uniqueness of being Jewish? So it's one thing when the rest of the world looks at us as anti but when we as Jews don't realize that there's something unique about being Jewish, and unique not as an end in and of itself, but a uniqueness that demands some level of responsibility from us. Is that how, how do you miss it? How do we miss it as a Jewish people that there's an additional responsibility, not just to do mitzvot, not to just do things, you know, ritualistic, but we have a responsibility to Hashem, we have a responsibility of the world to make a difference. So that's the second, but the, the best one, and it's not from this week's Pasha, this is going to be the week before Shoshana. Hashanah. It's either the week before Shoshana, Hashanah, between Rosh and Kippur, it depends what year you're in. but it gives an example. It says, It says, You know, there will be a time when there are going to be people amongst you who are going to start worshipping uh, other gods. And says, And it says, and Hashem says, there are going to be terrible curses that come on people who are worshipping uh, idolatry. And zot. Yeah, and when those people, those people who are worshipping foreign gods, they hear the curses of Hashem. You know what they're going to do? They're going to bless themselves in their hearts saying, "Shalom There will be peace to me. I'll go in the way of my, my own way, thinking that they are completely immune. So, that there are people, it says, this is, this is just made, utter root of moisten and dry, like, it. I don't know what that means in the English here, but the way the translation is usually understood is that it's just going to send us further down the pit of despair. Meaning that Hashem says there are going to be people out over there in the world who are going to go against, you know, uh, the Torah. And they're going to say, but the Torah says, you can't go against the Torah, right? And they say, Shalom Yeli. Um, You know, Hashem gets me. It's not my, uh, Hashem understands me. They'll bless themselves in the heart. You know, me, I do my thing. I'll go in my own way and Hashem will understand. Hashem says, no, 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 I don't understand. I don't understand. You can't just flout my laws and then think that it will be okay. That is absolute cognitive distance. There's a beautiful story we were told once by my late Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Noach Weinberg. So Rav Noach was speaking to, uh, was giving a, a, a class on faith. There was a secular guy in the class and he says, Rabbi, I have to tell you that uh, it was an interesting class, but you know, I, I don't need any of this religious stuff because me and God have a very close relationship. Rav Noach says, oh, yeah, tell me. He says, well, once I was driving through the... Um, with the mountains up, upstate new york i just have to think what they're called catskills they were driving up to the catskill mountains and it says and a truck came from around one of the corners and forced me off the road and i was on my motorbike flying off the cliff and i said you know there's no ways i'm going to survive this and i and, and i and you know i have to tell you rabbi i felt almost like the hand of god caught me and i fell and i, and I got up and i was almost completely you know not even a scratch he says, so God's got my back. I know, you know, God loves me. And that's why I don't need any of this stuff. So Reb Noach said to him, he says, okay, but tell me something. Who threw you off the cliff in the first place? He says, Hashem as well. So this is what happens with cognitive dissonance, is that we, we, we want to believe things and we want to do things. But if they, they, what happens if they're wrong? And, and that's where this, the concept of faith in general comes and how it plays itself out. So we do, dealt with the question of if there's suffering in the world. He says, how, and how, can I believe, how can I justify my virus? How can I justify my transgressions? If I believe in Hashem, if I believe in the Torah, if I believe in Jewish, how do Jewish, so that's cognitive dissonance. But the key to it, and that's this last line, just because I want something to be true doesn't make it true. Just because I want Hashem to like me. Just because I want Hashem to want things. Or just because I want uh, my politician to be the good guy. Or I want Israel to always be the good people. And I want everything to be that way. doesn't mean that it's true. And the ability to be able to filter information as it comes in. And to be able to discern whether that information is true or not. First. Before rejecting it because it offends you or you find it uncomfortable. So that's the key. So. The way I do this, and it's not always, in, is you try to read offensive material. I'm listening to a podcast at the moment, which I'm struggling to get through, to be honest. It's by a guy named Ibrahim X. Kendi, who is a, is a journalist for the, uh, for the Atlantic. So he's a, he's a mainstream journalist, but very much on the left. And he wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I'm listening to his podcast. And I'll be honest, I'm struggling with it because everything is, uh, prejud- you know, everyone's a victim. And everything is seen through this, you know, of everyone's, uh, every white man is, is privileged and every white man is, uh, is a racist. And, and I'm, I'm trying to listen to it. Now, as much as I find it difficult, I have to be able to listen to it. And once I listen to it, then yes, uh, some of the things you'll say, I find uncomfortable. Some of the stuff he says, I find ridiculous. But other stuff, I have to, have to, be, able to, have to be able to discern the information and get to a point where you say, okay, you know, maybe he maybe has something of value. Maybe there's something that I need to shift the way I'm thinking because I'm thinking about it the wrong way. So be that. You know, Ben and Jerry's. Okay, yeah, I hear what they're saying. But is there any merit to what Ben and Jerry's are doing? So, so uh, I'll give you an example. And, and please, for no sake, I do not support BDS by any stretch of the imagination. But, but, this is a, I was once speaking to a Palestinian and I was asking him about the BDS. And he says, How would you like us to protest? He says, We don't want to do violent protest. So what other ways of protest is it? This is non-violent protest. We want to boycott um, Israel because we are trying to get our voices heard. And we don't want to blow up buses and we don't want to hijack planes. This is is non-violent protest. Now, we can disagree as much as we want, but there's something to that. That there are people who want their voices heard and they're trying to find a non-violent way of having them heard. And this is a non-violent way. Uh, you, we can all disagree with it, and I do disagree with it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a very proud Zionist, but they have something there. And so th- there are times when we have to be able to listen to opinions that we find very offensive and try to say, is there any merit to it? Is there anything right to it? And even if we think largely it's wrong, to make sure that we ourselves are avoiding any forms of cognitive, dis- cognitive dissonance that we ourselves may be guilty of. All right. All right, everybody, thank you very much. Uh, Now, if there are anyone who would like to uh, ask any questions, by all means, you may unmute yourself or, or go to sleep.